Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. So this last year, I did one of those DNA kits. You know, you like spit in a little test tube and, and mail it to a lab and and then they, they send you some software to look at your family tree. And so I did this this last year. And, and I, I, I kind of know a little bit about my, my heritage. I was raised very much Norwegian because my mom is Norwegian. Um, but I found out through this test that I'm, I'm very much a mutt. Uh, my family lived, my, my dad's side of the family, my, my mom's side of the family was Norway, but my dad's side of the family is very much like a, like a mutt. Um, my family lived on the border of France and Germany. And apparently there was a lot of border crossings, if you, if you catch my drift. Like on the software, it shows you like a target from where you know, you're from. And on my mom's side of the family, it's like Bergen, Norway. And then the target from my dad's side of the family was the, the literal French-German border, just like right on the line. And it's just kind of fun looking through all that family heritage. What was really fun was I was able to trace my family history back to the 1500s to a guy named Wilhelm. Right here, this would be like my great, 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 you see the resemblance at all? Well, just a little bit. He's got some pretty cool, pretty cool bangs going on. Um, typically, there's not, there's not many pictures from people from the 1500s, but um, Wilhelm was a painter. I guess a very famous painter because one of his works is hanging in the, the British Royal Museum. So it's just kind of fun to look at his, his paintings and, and his story. But family history is, is funny. You know, you find some things that make you proud. It's like, ah, oh, famous painter in my, I'm, I can't paint, but you know, famous painter in my family. And then as you searching through family history, you find some more shady things you don't really want to talk about. Like my dad was named after my uncle who was offed by the mafia. He was a drug mule pilot, would fly to Columbia and between Columbia and Detroit. And my dad was named after him, which kind of makes me wonder about my dad has his pilot's license now. So I wonder what's going on there. Uh, at, at one point, we're not quite sure the specifics, but my family was kicked out of Poland at one point. And so family history just kind of teaches you some things like, all right, these are really cool. You know, I want to repeat this, these cycles in my family, but then it also shows you some things. You're like, oh, we want to break the cycle. We don't want to repeat that in my family history as well. Which is why the book of Acts is such a major book. Because the book of Acts is literally our church family history. It's the story of us. It's the story of how we got to where we are right now in this room. And it's also a story of what we should repeat and also what we should not repeat. And maybe you're here just kind of checking things out today. Maybe you got the mailer and you're just visiting the bridge. We're really glad that you're here. And maybe you're not quite sure on this whole like God thing, church thing, Bible thing. We're just glad that you're here. You're still gonna find that this journey is both interesting, but also practical for your own life. And who knows, after going through this book, you might want in as well. But I love what one theologian wrote about the book of Acts. He wrote that the book of Acts is like the mobile from which the New Testament books hang from. I love that imagery. You ever see like a children's mobile? You know, like hanging in the crib? I don't think they work because my kids still cried. They would never shut up when I turned that thing on. But you know, the mobile guy hangs there and dangles like the moon and, and different animals. If we had the New Testament books dangling, the book of Acts would be like the ring that's holding it all together. Because it's, it's, the, story of, it's the story behind Paul's letters. Like, who's Paul and why does he write a letter to a guy named Timothy? And who's Timothy? Well, Acts gives the backstory to that. 
Why is, uh, why is Paul writing a letter to a church in Ephesus? That's super random. Well, Acts gives the background for that. And so for many months as a church family, we're going to be tracing our church family history. Luckily, there's no DNA quit required on this one. Grab a Bible. It's all in there. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is page 909. The Bible's in the chairs. If you didn't bring a Bible, got those Bibles. And again, maybe you're newer with us. And we're just glad that you're here. And you can grab one of those Bibles, crack it open. It's 909 in those Bibles. Otherwise, I know a lot of people use their phones or tablets. If the Bridge app or the Bible on there. We also have some notes for today as well. But Acts chapter 1. Let me pray and we'll just jump right in. God, we do thank you that we can study this. We thank you for the opportunity that we can freely gather together. Look at your word. Your life-changing word. And Father, may we not forget that as we study this. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And if you need to do a surgery with that sword, do so. We, we come before you humbly submitted to what you have to say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have three daughters, and it, it's the best. But with three daughters comes a lot of waiting uh, they have their own bathroom, but for some reason, they just, they really love using my bathroom. I think that half of my existence in my own home is spent sitting in the hallway outside of my bathroom, just waiting to shower. You know, three girls on the other side of the door, just doing each other's hair and, and, and yapping away. And I'm actually considering putting like a little bench just outside my bathroom, a little waiting area there for myself. But I just, I, I'm not good at waiting. I hate waiting. I remember as a kid, I, I grew up a pastor's kid. And I would sit after church in the lobby and wait forever for my mom and my dad to stop talking so we can turn off the lights in the church, lock the doors, and go home. And when I would sit in the lobby and wait for my parents after church, I always thought, man, when I leave the house, there's no more waiting. I'm gonna go home when I wanna go home. Then I got married. And my wife, she's bubbly, and it is brutal. We'll be at like church or a party. It's like I, I can't get her to leave, so it's like right back to where I started, just waiting to go home. Life's a lot of waiting. The problem is, is a lot of waiting isn't so harmless. In fact, some of us maybe even came into this room today pretty heavy-hearted for something that we're waiting on. For some of us, waiting each month that goes by it's like the wound from that weight just gets deeper and deeper. You're waiting to conceive. It's waiting. And you're happy when your friends announce their pregnancies, but like there's just that part of you and it's natural, just that like part of inside you that just kind of dies. And you're like, come on, God, what gives? Or you're waiting to marry the right person and you're waiting and you're meeting a lot of weird people and it's just not working out. And then your friend sends a save the date card for their wedding and, and, and you try to like celebrate through the pain. You're very happy for them, but still it just kind of sucks. Or you're waiting in that unstable job market and it's confusing because you know several fairly incompetent people who have good jobs and here you are. Like waiting could just be this very slow torture. Yet at the same time, the waiting room of life is a place that God puts us in. Like, I hate to say it, but 2024, for you, might be another year of waiting. And if that's, and I know you don't want to hear, but if that's true, if this next year has a lot of waiting in front of you, would you consider this year to be a waste? Well, if I got to wait this year, it's just a waste of a year. This is where the book of Acts starts, the journey, right there. 
And as the lens of scripture zooms in on Acts chapter one, he stares at a blank canvas. It's the worst part of writing. Like, how do I start this? Where do I start? It's overwhelming. There's so much to say. He scratches his beard and glances at his first book. He remembers having the same struggle then. And maybe this writing thing just isn't for him. Maybe he should just go back to being a doctor. It's better money, less dangerous, a little bit more respect. Yet he can't quiet the roar in his soul to pen the words to this incredible story. And he puts his pen to the parchment and the Holy Spirit through Luke writes this, verse one. It says, in the first book, if you write in your Bibles, which I encourage you, maybe this year be a good habit to start writing in your Bibles. If you write in your Bibles, circle or highlight um, first book and then write the book of Luke. That's what he's talking about. The first book is the book of Luke. Acts is his second book. So in the first book, meaning the book of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began, underline that word, began to do and to teach. Now, the author of this book, the book of Acts, is a guy named Luke. Now, here's what, what's very interesting about Luke, is Luke might be one of the only Gentiles to author scripture. In fact, he might be the only Gentile other than Job. And this Gentile doesn't just author scripture. Luke, by volume, get this, authors most of the New Testament by volume. Now, his friend Paul wrote 13 New Testament books, so Paul wrote far, far more books. But I'm talking by volume, Luke was the biggest contributor to the New Testament, a Gentile. Now to add to that, Luke might also have been a slave. Now we know Luke to be a physician because later on his friend Paul says that he was. Um, so he, he was a physician and today, you know, to be a doctor is highly respectable, you know, very successful to be a doctor. During this time, it was a little bit different. Often wealthier families would educate slave boys in medicine so that they would have their own like live-in resident doctor. And so families actually own their doctor. A little bit backwards to today, because today you kind of feel owned by your doctor, right? When you, especially when you get that, that, that medical bill, maybe you're owned by the insurance company. But back then, a lot of families would own their doctor. So it's very likely that Luke grew up an educated slave. But at some point, he switches professions, and he starts writing. He might have been one of those rare doctors with good handwriting because he starts writing quite a bit and he authors the book of Luke. So Luke trades his stethoscope for a documentary producing hat. And he goes out and he interviews everybody. He sits down with Jesus' disciples. He sits down with Jesus' family. He sits down with those who were healed and family members of those who were healed. And he compiles his very first book, the book of Luke. Now, Acts is a sequel. We see this, this name Theophilus here. In verse one, now we're not exactly sure who Theophilus is, but many people think that Theophilus might be Luke's master. We're not quite sure on that, but some think that Theophilus became a believer and he said to his like slave doctor, he said, forget being my doctor, go out and record what's just happening. This has to be recorded. And so Luke travels around and he writes. And as he writes, this puts a target on his head. So much so that tradition has it that Luke is eventually crucified on an olive tree. But before all of that happens, Luke writes this book. And notice that Luke writes all that Jesus began to do. I love that. My first book was what Jesus began to do. I'm going to tell you now in this book, the book of Acts, what Jesus is still doing. He's just doing it through the church. By the way, that has not changed. 
The church, though imperfect, though very easy to throw mud at, the church is still the body of Christ. What Jesus began, he's still up to through the church. The work hasn't stopped. Our faith isn't about what was, it is about what is as well. This is Luke's passion. My goodness, we're only one verse in. This is gonna be such a good book, isn't it? Uh, verse two and three, you can look at your Bibles. Luke writes that Jesus spent a lot of time with his disciples after he rose from the dead. Many eyewitnesses in the weeks following his resurrection. And before Jesus leaves, he has a lot of meetings with his crew about launching the church. We get to verse four. I'll, I'll throw verse four here up on the screen. It says, and while staying with them, he ordered them to, to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, put yourself here in the disciples' shoes. This right here, is not easy. Come on, there's been like this flurry of activity. Their celebrity rabbi just rose from the dead. Everybody's talking about it. Each of these blue-collar disciples are now launched into celebrity status as well. Everyone wants to hear these guys' stories. Villages are waiting for the disciples to come to their village. Their own hometowns are probably getting ready to throw a homecoming for their arrival. Like the energy is at an all-time high. And Jesus says, okay, but don't leave. I want you to just wait. I'm like, come on, Jesus, I'm fired up. We're like, we've been building for this moment. This world has never, this world will never be the same. Let's strike while the iron's hot. Like, put me in, coach. Just wait. Jesus says the same to us sometimes, doesn't he? You hear him say, wait, wait on that. I know you want to take this relationship more physical, but not until you're married. You know that God says to wait until marriage. It's like, ah. Or you hear him say, wait, when you get that negative pregnancy test and you just so badly, you're like, you're so ready to be a mom. You're so ready to be a dad. And you look at that, he's like, there's no making sense of it. This is how they're feeling a little bit. It's like, man, Jesus, we've left everything. We've left everything for this moment right here. We're ready. The world's ready. And Jesus, ah, wait. Why? Well, Jesus says here, he says, why? For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This will all come together in the next chapter. We're gonna get to this next week in the next chapter. But Jesus is saying, what I am sending you to do, you're gonna need the Holy Spirit to do that. So if you go off and try to do this on your own, all amped up, I know you're all fired up right now, but if you go out and do this on your own, you will mess things up. And so you just need to wait. The way I think about it is, I think about it like um, my youngest, Reese. She's just crazy in, in the best of ways. And uh, Reese loves power tools. So anytime I'm like fixing something, she's gotta be there like to, just to watch me fix something or, or to help, especially if I go up on the roof. Don't tell her mom, but you know, we go up on the roof and she loves going up on the roof to fix stuff. And so a while back, um, it was raining, but I had this house project. You know, it was like my day off, I had this house project, you know, to-do list stuff. And I needed to go up on the roof and fix some loose screws in the soffit. And Reese really wanted to come with. I said, baby, you know, it's raining. You don't want to be out there in the rain. She doesn't really say anything. And, and then she comes back later with her swimsuit on and goggles. And she has, she has my drill. Just like, this is her. Just ready. Let, let's go do this. I'm all set for to be in the rain. Um, she's going to do things in life. I just hope they're legal. And so, so you know, I let, I let her come up. You know, I, we go up on the ladder and, and we're kind of getting all set up on the roof. And I give her my drill because that's really what she wants to hold. And, and she says, but 
you know, dad, I can hold the drill, but like, you know, what about the screws? We really need to screw these screws in. I said, yeah, that's why we're up here. Um, that's coming, but just wait, just sit here and hold the drill. So as I'm lining everything up, I hear her playing with the drill. I get everything ready to go and I turn around to find that she's been screwing in the screws and she's rounded out two of the screws. So like the screws are useless now. So look at this, like, what did, what did you do? Well, I'm screwing in the screws, dad. So I've been prepping things and getting ready, but goggle-wearing, trigger-happy Reese couldn't wait. And so here we are stuck up on the roof with no screws. Now this is gonna take twice as long we have to go get more. Whatever, it's just like, you know, lessons learned as, as a little kid. But come on, adults, we do this all the time. We just force things. It's like, I hate being single. So in a rush to have a wedding. I wanna have a wedding. Or I'm in a rush to have sex. So we're just gonna marry the next warm body. And a few years later, they're far behind than where they were, physically, spiritually. And I see this all the time. Mentally, they've digressed because they hitched their wagon to almost like a sick, lazy donkey. And I'll talk with them and we leave this unsaid. We certainly couldn't say this, but it's like, man, you married the wrong person. But now you're stuck. Now, had you waited, you might still be single, but you'd be better off. Had you waited, for sure, God had a better plan than what you're doing right now. But you force things. Or we'll do this with money all the time. I love what Dave Ramsey says. He says, when we leave our parents' house, we, we always expect to kind of start where uh, we left off as far as the living conditions in our house. So we want to start where our parents are currently at. Leave my parents' house. I want to have working cars. I want to have nice furniture. I want to have appliances. I want to have a big TV. Like, that's where I want to start. Not really realizing that it took our parents, like, decades to build to that. And so we'll leave the house and right away fall into a bunch of debt. Got to get a car loan to get a new car. And we need to buy furniture let's not get used furniture. Like, hey, they give out loans at the furniture store. And so we end up screwing our lives up with all this debt because we just can't wait. We like to force things. And when we're in a season of waiting, sometimes we need a friend to come alongside of us and say some hard things like, stop, okay? Hey, stop, wait. You're gonna ruin things if you just rush right into it. And this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples, right here. Hey, you're going to screw everything up if you don't wait for the Holy Spirit. You need the indwelling of God to do what God is calling you to do. Don't go do this on your own. And Jesus says the same thing to us often. Just wait. I know this part of your life isn't what you've dreamt of. I know you thought you'd have a job by now. I know you thought you'd have, at least have a spouse by now. I know you thought you'd have a house by now. I know you thought you'd have that opportunity by now. I know you thought you'd be healthy by now. I know you thought you'd be having sex by now. I, I, I know all that, but can you sincerely and daily just trust me in the waiting? And I think most of us, we really wanna do that. We have the heart to do that. We just get confused as to what does that look like to really faithfully wait on God? What does it look like to faithfully wait? What should I do as I wait? We'll get there. You just have to wait. We're getting there. <laughs> Acts chapter one, verse six. So, so when they came together, they asked him, Jesus, he said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, if I'm Jesus, this is where I just completely lose it. This is where, like, you, you guys still don't get it? You still don't get it? You think I'm running a political campaign right now? Like, I just started something greater. This is about the kingdom of God coming to earth to wreck all other kingdoms. I came here, died for your sins, took your sins, nailed them to a cross. I rose from the dead, defeating death, so you don't need to fear death anymore. And you want to talk about who's at the polls? You guys serious? I'm working with a bunch of clowns. This is why Jesus is so much better than me. 
But, but this question shows the disciples, they're not ready for what's next. They're not ready yet. And in the same way, it could be what you're waiting for, you're also not ready for yet. And I know that's a humbling thought, but that should be part of our process of thinking. So often we think, okay, well, God's just preparing the next job for me. Hey, God's just preparing my future spouse. Maybe, but it also could be that God is first and foremost preparing you for that season. And we only prolong that waiting period when we don't think that way. And that's the disciples here. Verse seven, he said to them, he said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons the father has fixed for his own, for his own authority. Now notice five big, and again, if you write in your own Bibles, there's like five big words here in, in verse seven. It is not up to you. It's not up to you. Okay, this is, this is a God thing. This is not up to you. So drop what you just brought up. If you keep on holding on to this, you're just going to wait and live frustrated. You'll be waiting your whole life if that's what you're waiting for. Missing the greater thing that I have for you. You have to drop this. He's actually giving us something. What do you do when you find yourself waiting? You're just frustrated you're waiting for something in life? Number one, we get this from Jesus, surrender. Surrender. Throughout scripture, not always, but very, very often throughout scripture, when God would have people wait, he wanted them to surrender something. Now, that's what's happening here with the disciples. But if you also go back to the Old Testament, um, if, if, you, if you know much about the Old Testament, there's this book called Exodus where the God's people are exiting out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land. And God has them in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering the wilderness for 40 years. And the people are complaining the whole way, just unsurrendered. And God is trying to get them to surrender their way before God brings them into the promised land. This is a lot of people today. And I wonder if it's potentially you we might need to surrender something before God brings us into the ne that next season. It might be an attitude, unsurrendered, critical spirit. Maybe just kind of heels dug in stubbornness. Maybe it's pride that God wants you to surrender before he brings you into the next season. Maybe it's just laziness. You're not ready for that yet because you're just lazy. It might be an opinion that you have. It might be a habit that you have. And God is saying, what I have next for you is awesome. But that attitude or that habit or that stick, stiff neck or that hard heart, that callous soul, we have to leave that here. That can't come with to where I'm bringing you. So anytime we find ourselves waiting, this is worth exploring. I'm not saying there's definitely something there you need to surrender, but it's definitely worth exploring. What needs to be surrendered in this season? Where is God working on me right now? Because when we fail to surrender that, we prolong our season of waiting. We just extend our waiting waiting room. The disciples had to surrender their desire for future, you know, future political things that they really wanted. And I just wonder if the same is true with you. And so Jesus says, okay, forget, forget your political vision for yourselves. My vision is far better. Here's my vision. Jesus continues. He says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my campaign managers. Nah, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This right here is why the church exists. This is why the bridge exists. The church is not a university. It's not a social club. No, there's lots of learning and there's social aspects. 
But you know, come in, make a few friends, just get some more knowledge in scripture. That is not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to witness, to make better witnesses, to provide a place for people to come in and to find family. And Jesus says, teach them how to obey. The church is for believers to reach unbelievers. More depth in church is to go deeper in witnessing and sacrificing to reach out, to reach more people. That is biblical church depth. And what's so fascinating is in the coming months, we're gonna see that the church in Acts, the the early church, they have to really fight to stay focused on this because the enemy loves distracting. We're gonna see the early church in Acts group up at times, not reach out into the community. They just kind of like their small groups. And then God allows persecution to force the church to like break up, stop huddling up and to get out there. We're gonna see the church in Acts, the early church get distracted by bandwagon teachings, get very, very legalistic. And the church in Acts had to fight to stay focused. This right here is the mission. And the same is true for us today. I really do believe there is nobody more frustrated than a supposed Christian who lacks passion for the lost. And I've seen that in my own life. I've experienced that in my own life. I'm just kind of frustrated. Get frustrated with the church. You know, and it's just not, not getting this or that. I have a list of complaints about this. Relationship with God isn't so fresh. Usually that is someone who has lost the vision for the mission. They get sucked into some bandwagon distraction. They lose passion for the lost. And so they get frustrated. Now on the flip side, the least frustrated Christians that I've met have been people with a burning passion to reach their community because that's the mission that Jesus gave them. In the same way, there is no church more frustrated, lost, infighting drama than a church that doesn't have burning passion for the lost. We minister in a community that is packed with people who are on their way to hell. Jesus says, that's your mission. You care about them. Stay focused on the lost. Bring them into the fold. You will be my witnesses. This is what will fuel you. This is what keeps you fresh. This is what takes you deeper. This is what guards your heart from critical spirit. Care about the lost. Because as soon as you take your eyes off them, frustration sets in, drama. And we're gonna see that play out more in the book of Acts. But Jesus is giving us point number two, in the way, frustrated in the way. Number two, here's what you gotta do. See past yourself. See past yourself. Jesus reminds his disciples here, This isn't about what you want. I know you have a political vision and a political ideology that you want to go after. That is not what we're we're about. Look past yourself. There are people who are dying and going to hell. We are launching the church to attack the gates of hell. And this is so extremely rich because of how psychology often works uh, when we're waiting. And I bet you've experienced this because I've experienced this. But when we're waiting for something, mentally, we tend to hyper-focus on what we're waiting for. We get very hyper-focused on it. What we're waiting for becomes the lens through which we see everything. And it dominates our prayer life. It dominates our conversation. We see, through, we see life through good health that we're waiting to get. Or we see life through a relational status that we want. We see life through you know, a job that we really want to get. Or having a baby. Jesus says here... Yeah, You can desire that, but lift up your eyes too. Don't get hyper-focused on that. Focus on caring about others in the season. Care about eternity. This is what I have sent you off to do. Don't let what you're wanting make you hyper-focused on that. And when you accomplish what Jesus sets you off to do, all the other things that you're waiting for is put into perspective. 
And we're going to see that with the disciples in chapter two. Next week, we're going to see that. It's so funny. Here in chapter one, the disciples, you know, they're waiting for this big political takeover. Suddenly in the next chapter, they don't seem to care about politics. They're bringing the lost people into church. They're baptizing. They're teaching them how to obey. It's like they forgot what they really wanted. What happened? Well, Jesus told them to see past themselves, take on a bigger mission, see to the spiritual needs of others around them. And that heart shift is massive. Uh, We continue on verse nine. It says, and uh, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So this is what we call the, the ascension of Jesus Christ. If you were to go to Israel today and uh, you were to walk around, you were to ask people, hey, you know, like Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, where did that happen? Um, they would take you to three different places, depending on the church tradition. Um, some believe that one, one spot where Jesus raised um, into heaven um, is, is a site where there's a mosque right now. So some people hold to that tradition. Um, maybe the funniest spot is there's a church where, you, of course, you have to pay to get in. And, and you go in and there's this rock in the middle of like the, inside the church. And this rock is where they say, this is where Jesus like ascended. And you can see his footprint on the rock from where he like blasted off or something. <laughs> it's pretty silly. When the, when the bridge, when we go to Jerusalem, we save our money on that one. We don't go there because it's ridiculous. But traditions, they, they argue about different spots, you know, and often they make them into like tourist attractions. But here's the benefit to reading the Bible is the Bible actually tells us where it happened. In fact, Luke um, tells, us the, tells us where it happened in his previous book. So Luke writes that his disciples went as far as, as Bethany, Bethany was a village on, just on the Mount of Olives, just on the other side from Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus left near, near the town of Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And scripture says that when Jesus returns, the Old Testament preacher Zechariah wrote that when Jesus returns, his feet are gonna touch the Mount of Olives and the, the mountain will split in half. So that, that's the future. But there they are. You think about it from the perspective of the disciples the rabbi that they have followed for three years, the rabbi who's taken them from nobodies to somebodies, the rabbi they saw slaughtered and then later they ate breakfast with him. The rabbi's gone. We continue reading verse 10. It says, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so the text says they walk back into Jerusalem, they gather up their core group, is about 120 early believers at that point. Uh, verse 14 says they're praying, they're worshiping. Essentially, they're doing exactly what we're doing right now, praying, worshiping, teaching. And then at the end of the chapter, they replace Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus and had committed suicide at this point. They replace Judas with Matthias, a new disciple. And they're giving us point number three. What do you do when you're waiting? Because Jesus told them to wait, but they also get to work. And that's point number three, get to work. Get to work. You have to wait, but get to work. Because subconsciously, we often think, well, if I'm being told to wait, then I just got to sit down and do nothing. Like, to wait means to sit. It's like, okay, I'm single. Wouldn't mind finding somebody. But, you know, like, just kind of sit here, wait for a single Christian who isn't weird. Just kind of sit here and wait. I'm just going to sit here and wait until my health returns. I'm just going to kind of sit around and wait until I get pregnant. Like, just kind of sit around and wait until God brings me a better job. I wonder if what those angels told the disciples, I wonder if God is saying the same thing to you. Like, hey, what are you standing around for? What are you waiting around for? Like, okay, yes, your prayer hasn't been answered yet, but 
get to work. I have a lot of other things for you to do. Like to wait does not mean to sit. And if you're like me, this can be a huge relief and a huge weight off my shoulders because I like to do stuff. I can't, I, I, I need to like make some sort of progress in the day. Like I won't sit down until I have accomplished something with my day. Now I know that can be taken to unhealthy ex, you know, extremes of course, but you can and you should wait and still be doing something. And you see the disciples doing exactly that. Like they'll obey, they will wait. They're not gonna go home yet. They're not gonna gather the crowds and launch the church yet. That's next week, we'll look at that. But they will start making progress to prepare for the big day whenever that comes. I think that too many of us are wasting our lives or just dreaming of the next season. Just dreaming of it. Dreaming of the next job. Dreaming of graduation. Dreaming of marriage. Dreaming of having children. Meanwhile, the precious moment where God has you right now is just wasting away. Yeah, sure, go dream. Absolutely, make career plans, have financial goals, desire a spouse, look to have children, they are a blessing. But don't for one second think that what you're waiting for is somehow more significant than the season where God has you right now. Because it's in these moments, these moments of pain where you're waiting and you're so dependent on God where God presses conviction into your soul. This is a very precious moment, these seasons of waiting. Seasons of wait are often the fuel that God uses to accomplish the great. Seasons of waiting are often the fuel that God uses in your life to accomplish the great. And so get to work, serve while you can, worship in the wait, sacrifice in the wait. Now is just too precious. I bet like you, people, uh, people ask me, and we do this with each other all the time, right? But people ask me like, you know, what do you, Junior, what do you want to do in the future? What's your future look like? What do you want to do? And I always say, well, I think I'm doing it. <laughs> like, yeah, but you're like, you know, you want to be like lead pastor, right? Because you're not like lead pastor. Like you want to be lead pastor, right? You know, like when your dad leaves, like to be candid with you, like if you were to die tomorrow, I don't think I'd want his job. I'm not, not waiting for that. Like, I, you know, I, I don't really think that way, at least anymore. God broke me of that 15 years ago. I went to school for radio. And toward the end of my senior, and I know I have a radio face, that's why I went into radio. Uh, I know, cheesy joke. But um, toward the end of my senior year, I got a job doing um, traffic reporting downtown in, in the loop. And so I, you know, it was like a night job. It's it just the worst, I hated it. Because you're sitting in a studio and you're staring at dots on a map. It's like 2.30 in the morning. It's like, here's your traffic, there's none. It's like, I just did that for, for you know, a few months. Like, this is terrible. And, and I felt like God wanted me in church ministry. But I could not find a job in a church. I don't interview well at all. Uh, that and, you know, look at me. So, you know, just struggling to find something. And my dad is not into nepotism, so he wouldn't hire me. But at the time, the bridge needed a janitor. And, and Becky, who was our office manager at the time, she was willing to hire me. And it was not really the ministry job that I was looking for, but like, okay, I needed a paycheck. And so for years, I cleaned this place, cleaned the bridge. Uh, for years, God just taught me, like, you want ministry? This is ministry. This is serving with your hands, cleaning up after people, taking up people's garbage, mopping up their messes. And after a few years, a, a small door opened. Um, the church needed a youth pastor. 
And my dad, he's such a punk. My dad would not hire me, but he stepped aside and he said, you know what? The elders can talk to you and they can make their decision. And the elders, the, the elders hired me to be part-time youth ministry. So I was doing part-time youth ministry and then I was still the, still the janitor. And again, that was, that was a few years of youth and, and janitor. And then, and then another, you know, another small door opened. I would periodically preach on the weekends when my dad was out of town. And then after everybody would leave the church, after I preached, I would then grab them up and I would mop up after everybody. Again, God just teaching me like, this is ministry. This right here is ministry. And if this is where I have you your entire life, then this is where the most reward will be. A mop bucket. Don't think that a pulpit is better than a mop bucket. Because if this is where I have you, then this is the most important. And so I had to surrender so much of my 22-year-old pride. It did more for me than Bible college, honestly. And so what, I'm, what I do right now, like my job that I have right now, I took this job just waiting for my big opportunity. And those nights of mopping and cleaning bathrooms after preaching, I've, just, I've come to realize I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting. As much as I'm just trying to get better and be the most useful I can be for the kingdom, whatever, whatever that looks like. So if that's mopping, then I'll mop. If it's teaching, then I'll teach. If it's writing, then I'll write. Like whatever he calls me to do. And if there's a call to do something else, like another door opens, okay, I just wanna be ready for whatever God has, whatever it is. And in the meantime, I'll just do this happily. Heck, I'll mop, whatever. I just wanna be ready for the call. And that is a mind shift for so many of us. Like maybe your season of waiting really sucks. And it looks worse than a mop bucket. You know, it, it hurts. And, and the season is humbling. But what if this is where the most reward is? What if it's here that God prepares your heart the most? What if it's here that you're just dreaming of getting out of? What if it's here where you're gonna make the greatest impact? Waiting is not a season to kill. Waiting is not a season to survive. It might be the most impactful season you'll ever live. Just don't miss it. Don't waste it. Dreaming of the next and complaining. Surrender. Lift up your eyes, look past yourself. Fields are white for harvest. Get to work and be ready for when that call comes. And if the call doesn't come for what you're waiting for, man, then mop your heart out. Mop your heart out because that's where the most reward is. And so we ask ourselves, so what? We always do, coming out of God's word, Acts chapter one, this is gonna be such a good book. But so many cool nuggets here of God just teaching us what it looks like to wait and what to do. We're gonna go into a time of corporate reflection as we always do, just taking some time before God, just still our hearts. A couple questions to guide this time of reflection. The first one I ask you is, where's God having you wait right now? Or is he asking you to wait? It might be in that job realm. It might be with having kids, getting married. It might be financial waiting. It might be physical dating. Where's he having you wait right now? And the bigger question, 
is what does God want you to do as you wait? Where's he calling you to? Maybe this looks like getting plugged into serving more. It's January. It's a good time to start these new habits, to jump in and start serving more. Maybe this looks like investing in other people. Maybe the Holy Spirit convicted you of surrendering something. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.